Good morning, church family, and uh, I love that song. Um, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God, and I hope that uh, hope that you really let that sink into your soul uh, this morning here, and uh, and that you will know that there's there's no fear in love, and. Um, on this Valentine's Day, we're going to learn about a dimension of love that really only comes from the throne of God. So welcome. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. My name is Randy. If this is your first time here at Windsor Road, we welcome you here. Thanks for coming out on this really blustery February day. So glad to see you, and I'm glad I get to worship with you this morning. Um, this dimension that of, of love that I want us to discover this morning is found in... Um, one verse, it is a verse from our series over the Beatitudes, and um, it's, I'll just simply tell you the verse, it's Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the verse we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, so Marina... Um, Abramovich is a performance artist, and performance art is kind of an expression of art before typically a live audience, and it can either be scripted or unscripted. Uh, performance art is emotional, uh, visceral, provocative. Performance art goes for the gut, and Marina... Um, Abramovich is probably the most renowned performance artist of our day today. And six years ago, uh, she authored an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. It was over a period of 90 days, 850,000 people streamed through the Museum of Modern Art for a chance to see this unusual exhibit um, of performance art called The Artist is Present. The Artist is Present. And it's a very simple concept. Uh, Marina, dressed in a bright gown, sat on a plain wooden chair. Then there was a wooden table. And then there was a, another wooden chair across from her. And one by one, visitors to the museum would walk onto the stage and sit in the other wooden chair across from Marina as she stared silently into their eyes. Uh, she did not speak with them. She did not gesture to them. She simply remained present and stared into their eyes as they sat for as long as they wanted to. Um, and this went on for 90 days, and um, I think she was there between six to eight hours a day, and once she sat in that seat, she didn't get up uh, for the entire day. And it was just a really surprising effect that it had on nearly everyone who participated in this performance art. And here's what I mean by that. Every day for 90 days, every day for 90 days, people broke down in tears um, after just a few moments of silent staring. Um, Marina said that as people 
became quiet and stilled their souls. She could just sense the deep, lonely pain that many people secretly carried. She wrote, I gazed into the eyes of many people who were carrying so much pain inside that I could immediately see it and feel it. Um, I'd become a mirror for them of their own emotions. She said, there was this one big hell's angel guy with tattoos everywhere, and he stared at me fiercely for about 10 minutes, and then he collapsed into a weeping puddle, crying like a little baby. What is that about? Well, a 32-year-old New Yorker talked about it and commented on how it was a rare chance to connect deeply with another human being. This 32-year-old New Yorker uh, said, you know, we are surrounded by millions of people in New York City, and yet we're lonely. We've all got our headphones on. We've all got our smartphones on our hands, our eyes glued to the screen. And there's millions of people surrounding us. And yet we've insulated ourselves and cocooned ourselves. And we are lonely, lonely, lonely. You can be near all of these people and still be so very lonely. Another observer summarized this exhibit this way. I see you and I weep when you weep. I see you and I weep when you weep. The artist is present. I thought that was fascinating, especially as we consider this verse in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't know about you. I think that Americans are conflicted about mourning and grieving and crying. I think we are. I think on the one hand, you know, we read the studies and reports about how grief is good and grief is cathartic and grief is detoxifying and grief uh, is, is healthy for the soul. But grief is good for someone else, not me. Uh, we're terrified of it. Because we don't want to lose control. We're Americans. We want to maintain our control. And that causes this conflict inside. And then we come to church and we read a verse like this. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And it sounds religious. It sounds like something Jesus would say. And so we come and we kind of nod and we kind of, yeah, okay, this is what you'd expect to hear in a place like this from a guy behind a pulpit like that. And, uh, but we, you know, we'll be out of here in about an hour and, and it'll be okay. We can get on to whatever else we want to get on to. But we don't really sit in this blessed are those who mourn. And, 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 and you know, besides that, we're kind of confused because, you know, didn't Paul say in uh, Thessalonians, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, Jesus said mourn, 
Paul says rejoice. Did Paul miss the memo? What's going on here? I'm confused. What do we do? Um, And I think part of our confusion is how we approach the Beatitudes. I don't know about you, but I've often looked at the Beatitudes uh, wrongly, where I see it as sort of an updated version of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt be poor in spirit. Thou shalt mourn. Thou shalt be meek. And Jesus stands on this mountain, and kind of like, you know, the new Moses. Moses came with the commandments. Jesus comes with the Beatitudes, and, you know, he stands up, and he says, now, y'all, as he's from Oklahoma, maybe, or maybe not, but now, come on, you be meek. Come on, you, you, you. You, you be a peacemaker. Come on. You, you be poor in spirit. Now, come on. Come on. You can do it. Try harder. Okay? So, so there. I'll see you in six days or so. Whatever. And that's just kind of how we see that. And, and, and you know what? Listen. That is the wrong way to see the Beatitudes. Because the Beatitudes were never intended to be delivered as a divine to-do list. It's, it's not. That's not the intention. What is the intention? Well, the intent, the Beatitudes are a declaration. There are no imperatives in the Beatitudes, right? English majors, help me here. There are no imperatives in the Beatitudes. This is a declaration. This is a proclamation. Uh, By who? By Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the king. Uh, To borrow from Marina, uh, the point of the Beatitudes is the king is present. Because, you see, the the Beatitudes are a part of a larger section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is embedded in Matthew's Gospel. And the point of Matthew's Gospel is the King is present. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, you'll have this lineage, this genealogy, this royal genealogy of the King. That's why in Matthew chapter 2, you will have the Magi visit with royal gifts To honor the king, to worship the king. That's why in Matthew uh, chapter 3, the baptism of the king, which is a baptism of identity and identification. Who is this king? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's who this king is. And this king then identifies with those he has come to save. Matthew chapter 3. And then in Matthew chapter 4, after this period of testing in the wilderness for 40 days where the king successfully accomplishes what Israel could not accomplish in the wilderness, the king then begins his conquest at the end of chapter 4 where he enters the land and healings take place, uh, paralytics and, and demons and epileptics. Uh, he healed them and great crowds Followed him. It's a different kind of conquest that's going on, but a conquest nonetheless by the king. The king is present. And then in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the king's royal speech. The king's speech, beginning with this proclamation 
of Beatitudes, blessings. God's posture to his people are to bless his people, to favor his people, to love his people, to congratulate his people. And God says that my people, this, this, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, this is normal. This is normal. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. That's normal. When this world is swallowed up by the new heavens and the new earth, what we see here and what we hear in these verses will take over. So Jesus says, let's just get started now. Let's let's start fulfilling that portion of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's start doing that now. Because this is normal. Now, our world will never agree with that. Ever. It won't. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for... That's not going to win you anything from the world's perspective. And you know this. Just last week, right? Cam Newton. He's there at the press conference afterwards, right? And he's mourning, isn't he? This guy's mourning. Now, you, someone correct me here. Uh, please, help me. Help me if I'm wrong. But did any reporter, any reporter, while this guy was mourning, did, did any reporter put their pen paper down and put the microphone down and put the recorder down and come up on stage with Cam and put their arm around him and say, Cam, I mean, man, you, you are really broken up about this. I can tell. I mean, we, and, and we, we, we mourn with you. We mourn that pathetically poor performance we saw. I mean, did, did, did anybody do that? No, of course not. You know why? Because in the NFL, they don't play by grace. They play by law. And the reason why no reporter did that was because they're thinking, we pay you way too much money to come alongside you and feel sorry for you, buddy. We pay you too much money to be that pathetic. Now get on it. Let's go. Come on. See. And that... Jesus says, is not normal. That's not normal. So he invites us to normal. And normal is what we read in the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are this, are, is this performance art where we are invited to exhibit The new heavens and the new earth, we're invited to exhibit normal. We're invited to display normal. We're invited to live normal now, okay? So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does he mean by that, blessed are those who mourn? What does he mean by mourn? Uh, Well... Well, here's what the word means. To mourn is to grieve with a grief that so takes possession of the entire person that it cannot be hid. All right? So so mourn is a strong word. 
And some of you have felt that, haven't you? You've been possessed by a grief. You've been hijacked by a grief. It overtakes you, and you just, it overtakes you. And it possesses you. And it happens. It happens. It happens at funerals. It happens when there's a death. The death of a child. The death of a spouse. The death of a marriage. The death of a job. The death of a way of life. The death of a dream. It's a sobbing, heaving grief that can't be held back. Mourn. It's a strong word. But this prompts the question, well, how can that be blessed? How can that be blessed? What's going on here? Well, here's what's not going on here in these verses. Jesus is not endorsing some perpetually pessimistic, droopy, dour outlook on life. That's not what's going on here. He's not, he is not endorsing the life of puddle glum. C.S. Lewis's puddle glum. In The Silver Chair, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, puddle glum is this marsh wiggle. And um, I mean, his name describes him, right? Puddle glum. Lewis says his expression was solemn, his complexion muddy, and you could see at once that he took a serious view of life. Puddle glum's the name. It doesn't matter if you forget it. I can always tell you again. Puddle glum. In the silver chair, they get trapped in an in a event. And so they're there being trapped and puddle glum blurts out, well, the benefit of being trapped like this is that uh, it'll save on funeral expenses. Puddle glum. They're at a ledge, afraid of falling. And puddle glum says, well, if we do fall, chances are we'll die before we splash into the river so we won't have to worry about drowning. Puddle glum, sad, morose, blue. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, no, no. If we're going to understand Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and this verse, we are going to have to go back in Israel's history. We're going to go back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And here it is. To comfort all who mourn, there it is, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, 
the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus quoted from this verse when he began his ministry according to the gospel of Luke. And he begins his reign by quoting Isaiah the prophet. Jesus declared himself to be the king. The king is present, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the deliverer. Israel's hope has come to free us from captivity. You see, in Isaiah's day, as in Jesus' day, God's people were still in captivity. They were oppressed by foreign occupiers. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what that's like. It's been since 1812 that we've been occupied by a foreign power. And, but they knew what this like. And first it was the Assyrians, and then it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans. When is God going to come? And the terms of occupation left Israel poor and impoverished and persecuted and marginalized. And they're mourning. They're mourning because things are not as they should be. They're mourning because the meek have not inherited the earth. They're mourning because enemies are mistreating them. They're mourning because there's hunger and injustice. There's mourning because the righteous suffer. There's mourning because God's people are being put to death. One year ago tomorrow, 21 of our brothers in Christ were slaughtered by ISIS. They were asked to declare their allegiance. And when they declared their allegiance to their king, Jesus, they were beheaded before the world. They mourn because things are not as they should be. And on our trips to the DR and to Peru, to Ethiopia, and to Haiti, we enjoy ministry with children, but our hearts are pierced because, God, how long, how long we see the conditions of the broken? When are you going to come and make this world over? Jesus is recorded to have mourned twice in the Gospels, one outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Can you think about what that was like for him? The author of life standing before a tomb. This is not what I had in mind when I created the heavens and the earth. A tomb. He wept the shortest verse in the Bible. The other time that he mourned was outside the city of Jerusalem as he was about to enter. He mourned because he knew that they were going to reject his kingly rule. And so the brokenness of life brought about by the brokenness of their rejection of his kingly rule. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. But we got to dig deeper than this. This beatitude challenges me. 
my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not know. God, I, I need to weep because I'm not keeping your law. You see, mourning is not merely at the sin and depravity that's out there. It needs to be, has to be, must be over the sin and depravity that's going on right in here, right in my heart. It, and, and, you know, it's easier to mourn the evil that's out there, but to mourn the evil that's in here. Greg Gilbert has written a very good little book called What is the Gospel? This is what he wrote. He said, it's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. Confronted with some truly horrific evil, they want a God of justice, and they want him now. They want God to overlook their own sin, but not the terrorists. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive them when... When, when someone does us wrong, we want the maximum, maximum punishment possible. But when we do wrong, we want the maximum amount of forgiveness possible. And then Gilbert says, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. And yet, that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. That's the bullseye of this passage. When I look into the mirror of God's word, and I mourn and I grieve over my evil, my selfishness, my sin, my rebellion, my insurgency. And so you know what the opposite of mourning is, don't you? The opposite of mourning is not joy. The opposite of mourning is denial. See, denial is what we do when we refuse to admit that we're part of the problem. Denial is what we do when we say, well, my, the evil in my heart's not that bad. Denial is about covering up. Denial is about blame shifting. Denial is about white lies, hiding, sneaking, manipulating, avoiding, being silent as a way of avoiding, changing the subject, rationalizing. Denial is what Adam said when God confronted him. Over his sin. First words. The woman you gave me. Denial is Eve's response. Well, the serpent. And people cannot mourn when they're in denial. Why would they? How could they? And so God, in his grace, gives us pain. And pain is God's way of getting us out of denial. Or as one author said, it took the acid of pain to eat through the wall of my denial. I'm thinking of the poet, Reed Isaac. In charge, on top of things, Integrity, courage, I try to be like that, Lord. Most of the time, I'm pretty good at it. I do my share about the house and around the office, and I work hard, and people depend on me. And sometimes I'm tough, but I'm reasonable. I get a lot done. 
And sometimes I have bad luck or take a job too big for me or things don't work out the way I like, but I'm a fair man. I don't ask anyone to do something I wouldn't do myself. That's the way I am or that's the way I thought I was. Last week, my secretary quit because she said that I was thoughtless and unreasonable. She's a good secretary. I didn't want to lose her. I don't know what happened. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And when I got home, I got no sympathy from my wife. She said my secretary was right. And then she launched into a diatribe about how thoughtless I was at home. How neglectful of her and the children. How bossy and authoritarian I had become. And she went on and on and on. And, she, and as she talked, everything, everything that I believed about myself began to come apart. The kind of man... I was, the kind of father I was, the kind of employer I was. It, it all eroded by the acid of her truthful tongue. And suddenly I knew deep down somewhere in this woman I loved, there was a pool of hurt and anger that I had never seen before. How could I have missed it? I lived with her. But I did not see her. I did not see that I had hurt her. And I didn't understand how I had done it. Or how I could be different. And she began to cry. And I began to cry. And I reached out to her and she held me and I held her. We really do love each other. But where do we go from here? Is there life for us beyond this death? That's the question, isn't it? Is there life for us beyond this death? Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, but man, that's a risky thing. I mean, what happens if I mourn? What happens if I'm vulnerable? I mean, to risk mourning is to risk vulnerability. And if I'm vulnerable and if I'm exposed, I mean, what's going to happen? Are you going to laugh at me? Are you going to shame me? Are you going to crush me? Are you going to be disgusted with me? Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Mourn is a strong word. And so is comfort. Strong word is met with stronger word. They will be comforted. It's in the passive. It's the divine passive. Which is to say Christ himself will do the comforting. And it's not the kind of comforting of a reclining chair or a memory foam mattress or a pampering at the spa. Oh, no. It's, it's not even the comfort of a friend who is there to dab our eyes with Kleenex. No, no, no. This is a different kind of comfort. This is a, this is, well, the word means to call to one side, to summon, to encourage, 
to advocate, to instruct, to coach, to console, to exhort, to teach, to strengthen. Isn't that the point of comfort? To give strength. To give strength. So God's strength comes alongside of us. God says, your tears do not repel me. Your grief does not disgust me. Your mourning does not repulse me. The king is present. You're not alone in your tears. I exist. You're not unwatched. I care. You're not hopeless. I am strong. I am strong. You be strong. And he gives us this strength to rid ourselves of the thing that we cannot rid by ourselves, and which is our sin. Which is why 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Same word as the word for comfort in Matthew's gospel. Same word. We have a comforter. We have a strengthener. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, the king, takes his seat, only not on a wooden chair, but on a wooden cross. The cross is his chair upon which he looks deeply at us in love. The cross is where the king is present. And not for long, not for long, because supreme comfort does not come from a wooden cross, but from an empty tomb. We worship the king whom the cross could not hold. So the comfort which Christ strengthens us with is one that is both present and future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's future-oriented. It's targeted to a horizon. Hope is there. He who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. Jesus' resurrection launched a new world order and all who belong to Jesus will be raised to share in it and rule over it. And this life is like a passing cloud compared to the incorruptible life in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's start living like we're going to live then, now, because that's normal, so says the king. Who walked out of that tomb? Jesus, our hope, our comfort. The Beatitudes don't tell us to seek mourning. Salvation is not, the gospel is not salvation by mourning. The gospel is salvation by grace from our king. So seek the king. Don't seek mourning. Look into the face of love and you'll mourn, not because of what your sin cost you, but because of what it cost our heavenly father who sent his one and only. Seek Jesus and his comfort will strengthen you. And the one who is our comfort also sent the comforter. God the Son, having died, buried, rose, ascended, seated, has sent his Spirit who enters and advocates, 
in our lives, the life of every believer who teaches us, the Holy Spirit coaches us, the Holy Spirit strengthens us, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we cannot do ourselves. Yes, you can, the Holy Spirit says. I'm with you. And his comfort floods us and spills over so that we just have to share. Which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul didn't miss the memo. He gets it. God's comfort flows not only to me, but through me. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted so that they can comfort others with the comfort that they've received in Christ. We mourn and we are comforted so that those who mourn can be comforted. <laughs> wow. Having been cleansed of sin, I now see as God sees. I see the world through the tear-filled eyes of Christ. His tears now become a lens through which I see the world. I see people. I see need differently. I, I now see through my tears what I could never see through dry eyes. Through dry eyes, I would look past the pain. Through dry eyes, I would look past the hurt, the loneliness of others. Through dry eyes, I might dart off or I might disregard the difficulty of others. But with tear-filled eyes, the pain of others moves me. And not merely to sympathize, but to serve, to act to the good of others. Because those who mourn are those who envision a future that has not yet come, the hope of God's new day. Those who mourn are aching visionaries. They possess a holy discontent. Mourners are dissatisfied with this world as it is. And so they pray, oh God, surely this world can be better. God, can you use me to help? And God says, yes. And so six years later, Celebrate Recovery is still meeting every Friday night. And, uh, and then empty arms, helping parents who mourn the death of their children. Gems, missions trips to the DR, Haiti, Peru, locally, cradle to career partnership with salt and light. My goodness. People who mourn are also people who do something. Tears become the new optical lens through which we can see this world and its needs and its hurts and respond in love. People who mourn act. And that's how you know what love is. Uh, Walker Percy once said, we love those, we love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their face away. 
And so on this Valentine's Day, for all who have ever bought into the photoshopped notion that love equals euphoria or blissful self-fulfillment or nonstop infatuation, for all who think that love is a thrilling moment when you think that someone has finally materialized to make every single thing in your world feel delicious and amazing and right forever, never, never. This beatitude offers the best love story of all. A parent works two full-time jobs to put their sons in a college prep school to strengthen them with what was unavailable to him when he was growing up. That's love. A friend makes an organ donation so that another friend can receive the comfort and strength of a healthy kidney. That's love. Someone is dying in their own bed and that someone's spouse is sitting at the bedside holding the dying person's hand and handling all kinds of unspeakable things that people who aren't drowning in gigantic piles of cash sometimes have to handle all by themselves. That's love. A wife is sick with dysentery and it hits overnight and she gets up and she goes to the bathroom and she faints and she cracks her ribs on the side of the bathtub and her husband finds her there passed out and he handles it without complaint. That's love. Not only not being made to feel shame about things that are clearly out of your control, but being quietly cared for by someone who is present, by someone who sees, by someone who knows when not to talk, by someone who knows what needs to be done under duress, and then does it. That's love. That's strength. That's comfort. That's our king, the king, is present. <laughs>